Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Hello, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about what's happened since the last podcast, which was uh, Brexit and uh, some of the other significant things um, that uh, have happened in the world that affect the economy somehow or another, um, and try to give you some background on that so that you can understand it. Because I think one of the problems is that people have been talking about Brexit left and right, uh, and um, a lot of people, frankly, most people probably don't have any clue what Brexit is or was and what the significance might be. Um, so let's start with Brexit. So what is that? So it is uh, Britain exiting the European Union. So let's go back to World War II. Um, World War II, at the end of World War II, there was a sense in Europe that there needed to be some kind of a system that would prevent these uh, countries in Europe who had been at war with one another for hundreds and hundreds of years to stop killing each other, to stop fighting. And so... That was effectively the idea behind the European Union, was to set up essentially a free trade uh, system between the countries um, in Europe, with the idea being that countries that trade together don't kill each other. So that wasn't such a terrible idea. In fact, we have a similar agreement in the U.S. called the North American Free Trade Agreement uh, with Canada and Mexico that functions a little bit sort of the same way. Um, And that worked very well. In fact, if you look, we really haven't uh, seen any wars between Germany and France uh, since the end of World War II. So obviously it's uh, it's been pretty successful. But the problem is that like any bureaucracy, it starts to sort of get away from itself and build on itself and become something uh, that misses the point of its uh, initial purpose. And I think that's what's happened with the European Union. And you see some of the, and you see some of the revolt against that in the United Kingdom. 
basically you started with a system of free trade in Europe. But then in 1992, you have the Treaty of Maastricht, uh, which essentially what that does is it forms uh, what is called a European citizenship, uh, which says that if you are part of the European Union, you live in one of the uh, countries of the European Union, uh, you no longer need to have a visa to travel and to work in any of the other countries uh, in Europe. So basically, it created a borderless uh, Europe for those members of the European Union. Um, in addition, at that time, there was a formation of the euro, which was the common currency. So you saw uh, the end of the Deutschmark and, uh, and uh, various other currencies in Europe. Now, uh, that over time started to create a certain level of uh, bigger government that um, didn't seem to be fair for some of the richer countries in the European Union uh, compared to some of the less, uh, uh, less productive economies. So, uh, for example, Germany is a big European powerhouse, and for the most part, they have been uh, you know, it's been sort of a, a matter of supporting countries such as Greece and Portugal um, as part of the European Union. So, so that's been one of the things that's, you know, created some of the strife in Europe. And, and you see that somewhat in the United, the United Kingdom. In addition, uh, the fact that there is a euro, a common currency, makes it much more difficult for a country to use monetary policy in order to improve its own situation. So in the last uh, episode, I think I talked a little bit about devaluing money, we, you know, in the form of inflation. Well, you can also devalue your money if you're a country by basically pegging uh, your currency to, um, you know, be worth less compared to uh, the dollar. For example, I think uh, if you take, um, I don't know where the Canadian dollar is right now, but I think the American dollar is worth a little bit more. I think it might be, you know, 1.2, 1.3 Canadian dollars. You go to Canada and you have a little bit of buying power there. So you're, you know, the American dollar is worth a little bit more and goes a little bit further in Canada. So, well, there is a way for countries often to be able to manipulate their currency. And you see that in China all the time. Um, where they are devaluing their currency. And what that means is your dollar is going to go farther there. Countries that are not doing well, sometimes it's in their best interest to devalue a currency. Why? Because say, for example, um, you know, Greece is not doing well and um, they have their own money and then they devalue that against the dollar. Well, all of a sudden, that brings in a bunch of tourism. It bring in it, it allows for um, uh, exports from that country to be cheaper for other countries. So countries like the U.S. start buying more from there compared to other countries. It essentially allows them sort of dig out of a hole. It's not ideal, and there's all sorts of other problems with devaluing a currency, but it does give them a tool. And right now in Europe, they don't really have any tools. And so why in Greece you're seeing the only, the only thing they can do is, is make them cut everything and um, what they call austerity. In other words, you've got all of these you know, welfare programs that Greece had set up for itself and early retirement ages and, and all this and that. 
and there's no way for them to devalue their currency and bring uh, greater economic activity to Greece because they are part of the euro system. And the euro is doing just fine in uh, France and Germany because they are actually productive countries that are not in quite as much trouble as as uh, Greece and Spain. Um, but, you know, they're, they're not struggling, so they don't need to devalue a currency. Greece could do uh, itself a lot of good if it could devalue its currency. Anyway, that um, those two things essentially uh, have created, you know, the idea of a common currency and a lack of borders have created some uh, a larger European uh, federation and uh, sort of a super country as I said before, a United States of Europe or United Countries of Europe. And part of the problem that happened uh, in the United Kingdom was that obviously the, you know, terrorism continues to be a bigger issue. So you have, uh, you had a lot of terrorist attacks and that sort of thing going on in the United Kingdom. And we're finding that people entered uh, their, their countries from somewhere else in Europe who might have been a little bit more lax about uh, you know, border border controls, etc. In addition, there are actually countries in Europe, such as Latvia, uh, that will sell a citizenship to uh, for the highest bidder. Not even the highest bidder. I think it's a million dollars or something like that. And you can you can essentially uh, buy your own citizenship to uh, Latvia and then become part of the European Union and then freely go into. Uh, where at least you used to freely be able to go into the UK and get a job or uh, or live there. So the people in the United Kingdom uh, have voted against this, and um, some of it may be because of you know some of the racial tensions and ethnic tensions that come from these kinds of open borders. Um, but also, I think um, there is a sense of uh, nationalism that comes. Uh, when an economy is not doing well, and the global economy at large is is not doing great right now, and so they effectively, for better or for worse, voted to leave the European Union. Why does this matter to you? Well, let's see. Well, why does it matter to the UK? Well, in the short term, it's hard to imagine that this is going to be good for the UK. And that is because essentially they've they had a lot of leverage when they were with the European Union. There were banks set up in London to serve Europe. So the big funds and sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, that were dealing with Europe were dealing with London, and that's gone now. Now now uh uh the United Kingdom is on its own. And so it's going to affect their banking industry significantly. Their currency also took a big hit. But why does it affect you? I think that's the other question that really needs to be uh, answered. And to be quite frank, for the most part, it shouldn't affect you that much. If the economy was in really good shape, it would be easy to absorb something like this. But what you saw immediately after the Brexit referendum came through was you saw our own stock market plunge. Why? Because of uncertainty and instability, and markets don't like instability and uncertainty, and that's pretty much what it was. It's not like something happened suddenly. I mean, even though the referendum happened, it's not like 
you know, the UK suddenly was on its own and that everything had changed. It's still part of the EU and it will continue to be until they figure out how to separate themselves. But one of the problems when you're in equity markets, such as the stock market, is that you are in a market that responds emotionally to things. And so all of a sudden, something happens that is completely unexpected. That is the referendum to leave Europe uh, from the United Kingdom. And that was not expected. In fact, the markets had pretty much believed that the referendum was going to be to stay in Europe because of all of the polls that had happened uh, prior to the actual vote. But once the results of the referendum came in and it was clear that there was going to be a big shakeup in Europe, the markets plunged because of uncertainty. And markets are funny because when they plunge because of something, they can sometimes take a deeper uh, dip than they really ought to. And a lot of this is simply because of the mechanics of trading. So say, for example, you know, somebody has an ETF uh, or is invested in the S&P 500, some kind of larger index, and they've got set so that if the market drops by 10%, there's an automatic stop loss. What a stop loss is, for those of you who do not know, it's a sort of a pre-programmed order that if a, if a number on a stock goes to a certain level, the that, um, that that stock should be sold immediately at market. Typically, people put these in or institutions put these in to avoid, you know, getting caught in a huge crash. The problem is that once that first set of stop losses trigger, the market continues to sell off. And then that amplifies more stop losses and that amplifies more stop losses. And the next thing you know, you've got a uh, big plunge in the indices like we saw after Brexit. Now, since then, the markets have actually recovered and they've actually come back to reality because they've realized, well, you know, maybe this isn't the end of the world. Uh, maybe it's not a huge deal what's going on and they've become rational again. But the important thing to understand here is that it doesn't take much in a fragile market and in a stock market that is overly inflated to easily sell off because a lot of people are in the market and they are fearing some kind of big correction. So, you know, they're trigger happy, you know, they're trigger happy to sell. So that's where your money is right now. If your 401k and your retirement uh, funds are sitting uh, in the stock market. So again, going back to my last, uh, episode. I think it's time for the most part to pull off into cash and then start hopefully buying something that actually has some tangible value other than paper. I think uh, Peter Schiff describes this as essentially a house of cards. You know, the idea that, um, you know, we're, we're in a, we're in a pretty uh, precarious position in the economy and in the equity markets in general, and that it could just take some sort of shock to the system and you could see all the cards falling down. Um, Jim Rickards also calls this, you know, sort of the snowflake that creates the avalanche. And that's where we're sitting. And fortunately in this, uh, this time uh, with Brexit, that did not happen. Uh, I think right now, um, you know, if you if you still had your money in Brexit and you saw this happen, 
it might uh, it might be time to think again about your positioning. I want to shift gears a little bit now because I think something else is happening in the world right now um, and has been happening that I think is actually um, potentially even more significant than what what we're what we're seeing in Europe, and that's what's going on in the Middle East. So some of you might have seen this uh, sixty minutes episode uh, a couple weeks ago. If you haven't, it's it's worth seeing on the 28 pages left out of the 9-11 report that some people think um, shows that somehow the Saudi royal family or, you know, people close to the family might have had, you know, something to do uh, with the 9-11 hijacking. In other words, um, not necessarily that they were, you know, that they were behind it, but that they supported uh, people who actually uh, were in this country and, uh, you know, training for their attack. So the U.S. has been really um, very careful. And for the most part, the, you know, the, uh, the Obama administration uh, has not really wanted to get into this. They've not really wanted to uh, release those um, 28 pages citing uh, national security matters. But Congress has been uh, pretty resolute about wanting those, uh, those pages released. They feel that the Families of the victims of those 3,000 people who died in 9-11 deserve to know, you know, all the information that there is about, you know, what we know about who was behind, who was behind the attack and um, how they did it. It's, uh, it's sort of hard to argue with that point. So why in the world would the U.S. do everything in its power to protect Saudi Arabia? Well, this is uh, another historical thing that we need to go back to. So let's let's go back to 1971. Uh, prior to 1971, the American dollar was pegged to uh, to gold, and so there was a certain value of gold that was uh, uh, pegged directly to the dollar, and countries could freely exchange their dollars for gold that that was uh, in this country. For a variety of reasons, in 1971, Richard Nixon uh, took the U.S. off of that gold standard, and um, for a while, the dollar went into free fall. It was uh, there was a loss of confidence in the dollar across the world. The dollar was losing a ton of value. So ingeniously, in 1973, Richard uh, Nixon and Henry Kissinger cut a deal with Saudi Arabia and uh, the rest of OPEC, which was this. In exchange for military protection, Saudi Arabia and the rest of OPEC would only sell oil with dollars. In other words, if a Japanese, if, it, if Japan came to, the, to OPEC and wanted to buy oil, they had to use dollars to do it. They couldn't use yen. And this was significant because what this did was create an artificial demand for dollars. And almost immediately, the dollar's value came back. And the dollar has been strong ever since then. So in a way, we went from going from the gold standard to a sort of oil standard. Well, that oil standard has a name. It is called the petrol dollar, if you've ever heard of that term. The United States is dependent on Saudi Arabia to keep up the value of the dollar. And the Saudis know this. And, you know, they're, they're not getting a bad deal either. They are getting military protection from the greatest military in the history of the world. But, of course, they don't want 
the world to know if they had anything to do with the 9-11 attacks, aside from the embarrassment that Saudi Arabia would have when exposed that they had anything to do with those attacks or supporting those attackers, they don't want to get sued. And obviously they've got something to hide because they had a special message for the U.S. Congress, which was, if you proceed to release those 28 pages to those families, they would be forced to sell three quarters of a trillion dollars of U.S. treasuries. Now that is a threat, if I've ever heard one. So why is that a big deal? Well, I mean, we are a nation of debtors. We are in massive debt, and someone has to buy that debt. When a country like Saudi Arabia says that it is going to sell off treasuries, all of its treasuries, it's a big deal. And effectively, it would also mean the end of the petrodollar. So the petrodollar is essentially what is keeping the dollar strong in the world. And we, if, if Saudi Arabia decides suddenly that, you know what, we're going to start selling oil for euros instead of dollars. We'll accept multiple currencies. Well, the U.S. Uh, the US dollar no longer has that same demand as it currently has. Japanese will therefore not be forced to hold dollars just so that they can buy oil. If that were to happen, there would be a huge shock to our economy. And again, you're watching this stuff happen on TV. Now, in reality, I actually don't think that there's any way that the U.S. will allow to fully reveal what's in those 28 pages. They may reveal some you know, redacted form where it you know, doesn't show that it, it's anybody in specific, uh, especially in the, related to the uh, Saudi royal family, had anything to do with harboring terrorists. And the reality is that the Saudi government, the Saudi royalty does need the U.S. They need U.S. for military protection. And they also need the U.S. as a place to keep their money. What you're seeing is a lot of posturing. And it's no uh, coincidence that Obama got onto a plane and went to Saudi Arabia to you know, have a special meeting with the king. The king actually didn't even show up at the airport, which was a big insult to him. This was a big deal for Saudi Arabia. But again, I don't actually think that anything is going to be released that will really expose what the Saudis are afraid is going to be exposed. But there are other dangers to Saudi Arabia that I am a little worried about, frankly. So over the weekend, the 4th of July weekend, there was actually, I believe, three suicide attacks in Saudi Arabia, uh, presumably from supporters of ISIS. So this is a big deal. The reason it's a big deal is that the Saudi kingdom has actually been pretty good at being able to control religious fanatics, um, the Wahhabis, uh, in Saudi Arabia up until this point. The problem for the royal family and uh, the kingdom there is that over the last several decades now, they have breeded that sort of brand of radical Islam and Wahhabism throughout uh, their own uh, country. I mean, it, it is part of uh, the education there. So behind that uh, kingdom that's very secular and we call an ally is essentially, you know, a huge population of people whose ideology is actually not that different from ISIS. So despite the fact that, you know, there's many reasons not to necessarily like the royal family, they are clearly the lesser of two evils when you look at the alternative. The royal family has essentially appeased its people in the past by paying them off. 
Saudi is a very wealthy country and all citizens are essentially issued, you know, checks. They're glamorized welfare state. People get paid. There's no income tax. Uh, There's all sorts of services available to people. For the most part, they've got, they've had nothing to complain about. And now you're entering a situation where oil has been at, uh, very low prices. And for the first time, Saudi Arabia is actually having some problems with its budget and they're actually cutting services and actually having to worry about how they are going to continue their lavish lifestyles. Well, that's going to come to, uh, well, that's going to be a a shock to the system of people who have essentially been, uh, you know, living off of the government. And when that happens, That's usually when revolution occurs. My point in bringing all of that up is to say that instability in Saudi Arabia is a major concern globally for the stability of the world and also for the economy of the world. And that's where we're at right now. Some kind of revolution or government overthrow in Saudi Arabia would be a much bigger shock to the global economy than Brexit. And again, because we live in a time when our uh, stock market is uh, grossly overpriced, earnings are low, valuations are high, and unemployment seems to be on the horizon, we have put ourselves in a position where we are not really at a place where our economy and our stock market can handle a significant shock to the system. If there's revolution in Saudi Arabia or some kind of shakeup in the relationship of the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, and we see the demise of the petrodollar, this could be that snowflake that creates the avalanche. And if not, there will be another snowflake. And as long as our economy is not healthy, we have to hope for the best. In terms of how this all affects you again, well, I think we're, uh, you know, we're at a place, again, where there's instability in the world. There's instability with the economy. Uh, we know that you know, there's, there's a pretty good chance that there's going to be a big correction uh, in, the econ- in the stock market very soon. Um, unemployment, uh, you know, new jobs last month or in, in May were 38,000, which was you know, like 100 and, uh, 150,000 jobs less than we thought. And there's another jobs report coming on Friday. Um, and we'll see how, that, um, how that's going to come out. The Fed had said that the 38,000 jobs in May was a big fluke and that they didn't really think that the economy was weak. But if Friday comes and we have another weak number, they are going to be forced to change their tune as well. The global elites are seeing this already. People are shorting the stock market. We talked about in the last episode how the likes of Goldman Sachs and uh, George Soros are warning of this. And people are buying things that they buy when they're worried about the economy in general, such as gold. The best thing that you can do right now, in my view, is to continue to educate yourself about what's going on in the world, how you can get control of your own finances, and ask yourself what you would do if you lost your job tomorrow. What steps are you taking so that you can survive the next financial meltdown and, and or the next meltdown after that? You might not have all the answers, but you can at least start asking the questions so that you can 
figure out what you might want to do next. As you know, I advocate for the formation of multiple streams of income. I'm a big proponent of entrepreneurship and self-resilience. I believe that it is a good time for you to get your money out of the stock market. I'm not allowed to give you financial advice, but that's what I would do. If you have a 401k, I would put it in cash, put it on the sidelines. Start looking at alternative investments, such as those that we talk about on this show or others, or just wait. The best time to buy is when there's blood in the streets. Just imagine if you had all of your cash sitting on the sideline at the top of the market, you just pulled it all into cash like you could do now, and then all of a sudden 2007, 2008 came. Boom! You had all this dry powder to buy up everything cheap. You could have wrote it back up 200% to the top. Now, I'm not a stock market guy, but I'm just giving you that example. But when financial crises happen and there's blood in the street, there's all sorts of things that go on sale, and it's good to have your cash on the side. We'll have more shows in the coming weeks and months um, that will give you some better ideas on what, what are some of the things that you can do with this that would help weather that storm. In the meantime, thanks for listening. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.